This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Katie Balls, Isabel Hardman and also Fraser Nelson. Now, this Thursday is when the long-awaited energy security strategy will be published by the government. Fraser, what kind of stuff can we expect to see in that? Because obviously the question has become even more important after the Russian invasion. Well, this was Boris Johnson's original grand plan for energy, now repurposed as a manifesto for energy security in the age of Putin. Since then, Britain's got reasonable story now. I mean, unlike the Finns and the Germans, we get tiny proportion of our, our oil and gas from Russia, closer to 6%. I think Finland's like 99%. So we can um, certainly boast, as Boris Johnson surely will, that we're going to um, get rid of it completely. The problem, of course, is that he likes nuclear a lot. Uh, nuclear takes a long time to build, so is it going to be a solution in the short term? Almost certainly not. That's going to be the weakness in his argument. He's a great fan of these um, small reactors. When he talks about this in number 10, he jokes that he wants uh, a reactor in every every Labour constituency. The joke being that um, people will go ballistic, as it were, if they think a nuclear reactor is going to be built in their constituency. So easier to do where your opponents are. Now, as ever with Boris's grand plans, you can expect to sort of big gap where the detail should be. It's not so long ago that he set forth his net zero plan, which was comically lacking in any kind of serious analysis of how he might get there. I also expect net zero not to be mentioned very much. Mm. Now, remember, this was supposed to be the guiding drive, the great big Boris Johnson mission. I spoke to somebody in government a couple of weeks ago who's saying it's now been dropped. Mm. We're not going to hear it ever again. Now, that's probably an exaggeration, but not much of one. So if we do hear him come up with a great big energy manifesto and we don't hear the words net zero every second sentence, I think it might be fair to conclude that this could be the week with net zero zero was effectively dropped as a major government policy. Katie, you wrote um, a cover piece on COP26 back when it was the screen bonanza that was happening and the government has spent you know, months preparing for it. Do you think all of that was for nothing then, if Fraser's right? Well, I think that's something that was seen as important for a few reasons. Now, I think, A, you still have legally binding commitments and at COP26 you saw other countries making commitments and all of them went as far as perhaps Alex Sharma, who appeared tearful at the end of the summer, uh, wanted them to go. But movement has been made on various areas and that is international regardless of what one government does to no one's expecting Boris Johnson to drop the government's net zero commitments they're enshrined in law that began under Theresa May and there's been more since then so I think what we're talking about instead is more where is the focus in government and what are they trying to say and as Fraser was just saying I think that you are seeing, I think there's a few things going on here. One, clearly, the energy crisis that um, the UK, but lots of other countries are now facing, means that I think while there is a general sense you should be moving to renewables, something which does align with net zero, I think the focus is uh, you know, talking about in terms of self-sufficiency, and, and that is the language around it. But generally speaking, yes, the Prime Minister has considered things like fracking in recent weeks, things that had previously appeared to be ruled out. But the future in terms of nuclear renewables... It's not massively going against, you know, what, what the government was saying on energy previously. So why then are they not talking about net zero? Well, two, I think that in the face of Russia, Ukraine, it just, the more, the convincing argument, I think, which is, or the one that feels the most apt right now, is one about uh, 
being self-sufficient, not having to rely on some countries. But also, you're in a situation where Boris Johnson, yes, has so far survived Partygate and there's increasing confidence he is going to get through there. But ultimately, he does have a fractured relationship with his party. This new Downing Street is having to listen to what MPs say a lot more than the previous incarnations of Boris Johnson's number 10 did. Often MPs felt so they were, you know, just being ignored. And actually, this one is much more parliamentary focused. So you think about his chief of staff, Steve Barkley, is an MP. His head of policy, Andrew Griffith, is an MP. And therefore, I think, given that there are a group in the Tory party who are very sceptical of net zero, you think about the net zero scrutiny group and so forth, there is an upside from the government perspective in talking about things in a different way and focusing more on energy in that sense. And Isabel, what else can we expect to hear? from this strategy on Thursday then because as Fraser mentioned there'll be some stuff on nuclear uh, but what else would be in the mix as it were? Well I think there has been a reasonably public row also on onshore wind between different members of the cabinet. You had Grant Shapps, uh, the transport secretary over the weekend saying that he thought that onshore wind farms were an eyesore and the Conservatives have not banned onshore wind, but they have effectively, over the past few years, given communities a, a right to veto onshore wind, which has, has effectively led to very few uh, new developments of uh, wind farms. And uh, there's some discussion about whether there could be uh, better incentives for that, whether it's something that the Conservatives want to promote. I mean, the, the benefit of renewables is that they're very quick to construct compared to a nuclear power station, for instance. You know, you obviously have to go through a planning process for onshore wind, but it, the actual putting up of a windmill is is quite obviously a, a much simpler matter. Uh, same goes for uh, photovoltaic panels, you know, solar farms, and offshore wind, uh, which is already a, a massive thing, actually, in some parts of the UK, particularly Cumbria, where I spend quite a lot of time, have a, one of the biggest um, offshore wind farms in, in Europe. So if the UK is looking, at, as it is, to try to solve an energy supply crisis quickly, then renewables need to be part of that mix. But the problem is, is that Shire constituencies do not like them because they have a um, they have the eyesore factor that Grant Shapps mentioned they have a noise pollution problem when it comes to wind and so they they can end up causing real antagonism within uh, constituencies and I remember back in 2010 2011 conservative MPs certain conservative MPs just did not stop talking about wind farms because they were representing seats that were quite windy and uh, there were proposed wind farms that they argued were, were going to blight the landscape and the reason they didn't stop talking about them was because their constituents became obsessed with them and so there is uh, this political uh, calculation that's also being made. Mm. And Katie, back in Westminster, the story of Partygate is moving on as we start to hear the first names of who was fined last week. Can you tell us about who we know? Yes, so we're getting more details about who has so far got fines and just to remind listeners, this isn't being done in one sitting. We know the first wave of fines have been issued. We expect more to be there. Um, something that's, I think, frustrating many in government because there is a sense that all the way in the build-up to the locals is going to you know, be in the news. So among those who have received fines, Helen 
McNamara is the first to be named. Now, former civil servant, no longer works for the civil servants, but um, this is lending itself to headline writers everywhere in the sense that she was previously in charge of propriety and ethics at Whitehall, and she's now obviously been given a £50 fine for breaching rules. In terms of the fines so far, they appear to be in the most clear-cut cases. That's what we believe is going on in terms of pushing them out. I think what is... May causing some unease in Downing Street, though, it's just the number of fines that have gone out, and therefore, if you are, um, you know, pushing out, you know, ten for one event, ten for another, and you're starting to wonder, well, does that mean they're going to be, you know, dishing them out in high quantities? Obviously, the odds start to look less good for the Prime Minister. I think the defence is clearly going to be that it is his home and his workplace. So I think those around the Prime Minister believe that Boris Johnson should be treated differently than others because he has a different um, defence. But therefore, if we do head to a situation where he gets a fine, I mean, we've had Simon Hart, Cabinet Minister, out this morning saying that he should stay in that case, but he shouldn't apologise. What's interesting is, I think anyone logically would imagine that if Boris Johnson receives a fine, he should apologise. But Downing Street will not commit to that. They will not confirm. Uh, if, if you know, if there are questions about, if you think about uh, the confusion last week when Downing Street refused to say that they accepted the law was broken in number 10, and then you had Dominic Raab going out on the airwaves to say that it was, and still Downing Street didn't change the official line. It's a strange one, I think, for cabinet ministers going out the broadcast round because while you can see why Simon Hart would say that, I'm not sure if that is exactly in line with the number 10 position, which is currently, we're not saying anything while this is going on, a position that's probably quite hard to keep up when you ask lots of questions on the TV and radio. Isabel, internationally, over the weekend, there were these horrifying footage of um, Ukrainian citizens dead on the roadside um, in the cities that the Ukrainian troops seem to have taken back, and the BBC has gone reporting there. This has led to more calls on sanctions of Russia. So what can we expect in the next few days for Western leaders to be talking about? So Britain uh, is trying to, I think if, if we're looking at this through a sort of political lens is trying to get back out in front again uh, has been pushing eu nations including france and germany to agree tougher measures on energy uh, this is obviously particularly difficult for france and germany given uh, their level of reliance on russian energy supplies you've got liz trust the foreign secretary in poland today uh, having talks uh, with her ukrainian and polish counterparts and uh, ukraine are calling for a full embargo on russian oil, gas and coal, which is, uh, to put it mildly, a a tall order. There's also questions about, once again, about what the red lines are in this conflict. The the, the images are truly appalling and the the stories, uh, the treatment of civilians, um, many reports of um, women being uh, systematically raped as well um, by Russian soldiers uh, as they retreat, is this a new threshold it's a new threshold for sanctions and Boris Johnson has said that it's more evidence of of war crimes but aside from the process that's starting at the International Criminal Court which will obviously take many years and hopefully the the war will be over very soon but the criminal court process takes takes a very very long time uh what could what else can be done uh immediately so far it's been made clear to us that a red line would be the use of chemical uh, weapons, chemical or biological weapons against the Ukrainian people, or indeed the use of nuclear weapons or something that spilled over into NATO countries. Um, but I think at the same time, these images are 
horrifying and the length of the conflict and the regularity with which we are going to be seeing the these war crimes i think may well add to the pressure on leaders to do more whatever that might be whether it's expanding the definition of a defensive uh, weapon because at the moment nato countries are supplying purely defensive weapons uh, to ukraine as opposed to ones um, that are uh, that can be used to attack outright and uh, you can sort of stretch that definition to to a certain extent but for, for ukraine one of their arguments is well you know what what's the difference between us shooting down a Russian plane uh, using a, um, a a weapon on the ground, and what's the difference between us be, uh, and then us being in a plane supplied um, by the Poles, for instance, that that we're flying that we shoot down a Russian plane. Isabel and Katie, thanks very much, and thank you very much for listening. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, you can get a newsletter to your inbox every Saturday with a roundup of the best podcasts from the Spectator that week. You can get that for free at spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast dash highlights. Thanks for listening.